Good morning. All right, welcome to Calvary Chapel Iwakuni. Great to be here with you guys as we gather to worship the Lord. Uh, very special day today, um, starting off a, a very special week for us as believers. So really excited about that. Well, uh, today we are going to be looking at the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ that took place on what we refer to as Palm Sunday. Normally we're in the book of Luke, uh, but we're going to take a pause this week and the following week just to observe these special uh, days. And so uh, just kind of put a, a bookmark there in the Luke uh, Gospel of Luke. And uh, this morning, each of the four gospel accounts actually give a description of the events of that day, Palm Sunday. But for our time, we're going to focus in on what John's account has to say. And so go ahead and open up your Bibles to the Gospel of John. Uh, John is the fourth book in the New Testament. It is the last of the four gospels. Um, and as you find the book, make your way to the 12th chapter, John chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, a number of the chairs around you do have Bibles underneath them. You feel free to reach down and grab one of those that you might follow along. Today, we are actually going to cover a large portion of Scripture, okay, from verse 12 all the way to the end of the chapter. Uh, we're going to break up the text into three major sections. For those of you who may like to take notes or just outline our text, um, you can note that we'll be hitting three major sections. Each section is going to reveal to us a different way in which Jesus Christ presented himself to the people there in Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday. For that reason, I've entitled our time together this morning, The Presentation of Jesus. The Presentation of Jesus. As we make our way through the text, we're going to simply note some different observations concerning the events of that day. And the hope is that as we make some of these observations, that the Lord would encourage us perhaps even challenge us, and uh, I definitely hope that he would edify us and uh, cause us to grow in our understanding of, of who the Lord is, uh, of what he has done for us, and what he wants for and, and from each of us as well. So, we all please rise to your feet as we get into our time of study this morning. Normally, I would read through the entirety of our text, but since we have such a large text to cover, I'm just going to read the first major section to get us started. Uh, and so follow along with me as I read from verses 12 through 22 in the 12th chapter of the book of John. John writes the following in verse 12. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it. As it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him, because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee. And they asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. We're going to pause. We'll stop right there. We are going to make it to the all chapter, but we'll stop there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and this opportunity that we have to remember your triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem, starting just a, uh, an incredible week of you fulfilling prophecy, Lord, and ultimately laying down your life for us, Lord, granting to us an opportunity to have a right standing with the Father. And so we thank you so much uh, for that work. We thank you for this time that we can look back this uh, week that we get to remember all that you did. And so give us a fresh set of eyes, a fresh set of ears to see and hear all that your spirit desires to, to speak to us and to show us this day. We give you our time and ask for your continued presence and your blessings. And it's in Jesus' name that we ask this. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. 
As I already mentioned, we're going to be breaking up our text into three major sections, and in each section we're going to see how Jesus Christ presents himself differently to the people that were gathered together there in the old city of Jerusalem. In the first section, the one that we just read from verses 12 through 22, it focuses upon Jesus Christ presenting himself as the Lamb. The second section, verses 23 through 35, shows Jesus presenting himself as the sacrifice. And then in our third and final section of our text, from verses 36 through to the end of the chapter, verse 50, we're going to see Jesus present himself as the light. Now, before we get into the text again, it is important that we understand the background of what's kind of going on here in this section. We kind of jump right into uh, the text, not understanding what's going on. So I do want to give you a little background just to kind of get us all on the same page. The city of Jerusalem at this time is swelling with people. Jews and God-fearing Gentiles from all over the land are gathering together in Jerusalem to commemorate the Passover feast. Recall, if you will, uh, that the nation of Israel was given seven different feasts, holy convocations, if you will, to recognize throughout the year. They were important days that symbolized different events in the history of the nation of Israel. Three of the seven events uh, were uh, required attendance for every male. They were to be appear before the Lord, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Deuteronomy chapter 16 gives us that information. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread is the second feast of the year and is tied to the first feast of the Jewish calendar, the Feast of Passover. You see, the end of Passover marks the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. As they would celebrate the Passover, as soon as the sun would go down, the new day would start, that would start the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They go hand in hand. And so we understand that uh, the Passover was happening at this time. Uh, It marked really, um, well, it was instituted as a means of remembering their deliverance from slavery at the hands of the Egyptians. If you guys recall back to the book of Exodus, the tenth and final plague that was unleashed upon Pharaoh was the death of the firstborn. The Lord instructed Moses to inform the people that they were to take a lamb and they were to kill that lamb. And they were then to take the blood of that said lamb and they were to then uh, strike it upon the lintels and the doorpost of their uh, dwellings. And when the Lord uh, sent out the destroyer that night, all the doorposts that had the blood of the Lamb upon them were passed over. That's where we get the Feast of Passover from, the name, right? Because they would pass over the houses that had the blood of the Lamb uh, upon the lintels and doorposts. The next day, after seeing the death of his heir to his kingdom, Pharaoh finally let Moses and his people go. And because the Jews left in haste that day, they did not have time to wait for their dough to rise. And so they ate unleavened bread. And that's where the Feast of Unleavened Bread has its roots. Okay? And so we see that Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they coincide together. And since attendance was required for these feasts, we understand why the city would be swelling at this time. Every male and most of their families would be gathered together in Jerusalem, ready to keep the appointed feast. Not only would the city be swelling with people, but the city would also be filled with lambs. Goats and sheep would be all over the place. Each family was required to bring their own Passover lamb to be sacrificed before the Lord. Part of this requirement to bring a lamb stated that you needed to select the lamb that was to be sacrificed on the 10th of the month so that it can be inspected and proven to be a lamb without blemish. Exodus chapter 12 verse 3 tells us that. The lambs were presented for inspection on the 10th, but they wouldn't be sacrificed until the 14th at twilight. Uh, Many believe that Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem on the 10th day of the Jewish month in accordance with the law requiring the inspection of the Passover lamb. And so I want you to picture in your mind's eye, if you will, okay, tens of thousands of lambs being brought into the holy city to be inspected and readied for the Passover. And in the midst of all the hundreds of thousands of people and the tens of thousands of lambs, Jesus Christ comes entering into the city, presenting himself as the Lamb of God. 
And so let's read these opening verses again, verse 12 and 13. It says, The next day a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. John mentions this great multitude we just spoke about and that had come out to Jerusalem for the feast and how they were they had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. You see, word of Jesus and his ministry that he was doing, it was spreading quickly throughout the masses. People had heard about uh, his powerful teaching as one who spoke with authority. They heard about the uh, miraculous healings, about the multiplication uh, of the food that he did to feed the 4,000 and the 5,000. As well, they had heard uh, of him even being able to raise people from the dead. And so the people, they were extremely excited to hear that Jesus is coming into the city. And their response to the news was to take branches of palm trees, to go out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Now there is a a lot to understand in regards to what they both did and what they said here in verse 13. So let's look at what they said first. The word Hosanna is actually a Hebrew word that means save now. They were crying out to Jesus, save us now. It was an exclamation of praise implying rulership. They were pledging their loyalty to him as their ruler. They were referred to him even as the king of Israel. However, their shouts of save now, we need to understand they had nothing to do with the salvation of their sin. And it had everything to do with salvation from those who oppressed them namely the Roman Empire at this time. The phrase they used, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, was a quote from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 verses 25 and 26 declares, Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This psalm was known as a messianic psalm. It was a psalm that spoke of the uh, future work of the Jews' long-awaited Messiah. And by using this phrase, the people were welcoming Jesus as their Messiah and believed that he would save them, not from their sins, but from the Roman oppression, and that he would bring them freedom, and he would bring them prosperity, as was mentioned uh, in the book of Psalms. Their shouts that day were misdirected. They were thinking of Jesus as a a political or, or military savior, one who would come in and set them free from the oppression of Rome and bring them to a place of great prosperity and rejoicing. And so that's what they said. But let's look at what they did. They took palm branches, they waved them before Jesus, and then laid them down before him as he came down the Mount of Olives. You might think to yourself, what's so significant about that? Well, I think it has a lot to do with what was prophesied by the Old Testament prophet Zechariah. In the book of Zechariah, uh, chapter 14, in fact, uh, 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 we have described for us what it will be like on the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord is uh, a time in the Bible that's referred to as a time when uh, when the Lord will come to fight against the nations that have set themselves against the city of Jerusalem and the people of Jerusalem. It is a day that would be a day of God's vengeance upon Israel's enemies and a day of deliverance for the Jewish nation. Zechariah chapter 14 verse 4 tells us that on that day, the day of the Lord, okay, um, the Lord will come and place his feet upon the Mount of Olives, which is exactly the same place that Jesus is entering into the city from, the Mount of Olives. It also states in verse 9 that living waters will flow from the city of Jerusalem and the Lord shall be king over all the earth. Jerusalem, uh, according to verse 11, will be safely inhabited and will all will come to Jerusalem to worship the king. Uh, Zechariah 14 verse 16 states, And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. Now, some of you might be thinking, wait a second, I thought we were talking about the feast of Passover and 
unleavened bread, okay? What's all this about uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, okay? What does it mean for them to be, uh, you know, waving palm branches during the Feast of Passover if it's associated with the Feast of Tabernacles? Let me explain, okay? The Feast of Tabernacles is a feast that was to take place at the end of the second harvest. It's the only feast of the seven feasts that is associated with the use of palm branches, Uh, According to Leviticus chapter 23, verse 40, in association with the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles, the Jews were to gather together branches of palm trees and wave them before the Lord as a sign of great rejoicing that was to last an entire week. And so by using the palm branches in their rejoicing and in their reception of Jesus Christ, they are anticipating Jesus fulfilling the prophecies of Zechariah. Okay, they see Jesus on the Mount of Olives, just like Zechariah described, okay? and they think he's the Messiah, that he's going to come and fight against the nations that have oppressed Israel. They think Jesus is going to set up an earthly kingdom where he rules over the land of Israel as a king, okay? a land that will be free of destruction and, and uh, they will be safely inhabited, no longer under control of another nation a place where people from all over the world will gather to worship the Lord and keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And so basically what they are saying, if I can summarize and paraphrase what's going on here, you guys, is they're saying, forget the Passover, okay? Let's go straight to celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay, Passover was a solemn time of of death and, and blood, okay? Let's skip it. Let's go straight to the Feast of Tabernacles. Let's rejoice. You're the guy, Jesus, okay? You're the one Zechariah prophesied about. Let's celebrate. Let's rejoice. But they had it all wrong. Jesus wasn't coming as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He was coming as the sacrificial lamb of God. He wasn't coming to set them free from political bondage, but he came to set them free from their spiritual bondage, the bondage to sin. And that's why we understand Jesus' response to their shouts of praise and to their adulations unto him as king. They're waving and laying down of the palm branches in celebration. It wasn't like he was excited saying, yeah, you guys got it. You're right. No, we read in Luke's gospel Okay, according to Luke 19.41, as Jesus descended the Mount of Olives and the people were praising him and rejoicing, you know what Jesus was doing? He was weeping. Jesus was weeping over the city. He was weeping over the people. He knew that their praise was misguided, that their rejoicing was premature. He knew that they were headed for more difficult days ahead of them. Well, let's continue on or else we'll never finish, okay? Verse 14 says, Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Jesus sat upon a donkey as he came down the mountain of olives, and in so doing, he fulfilled another prophecy that was spoken of by uh, Zechariah. We're told that the disciples had no idea what was going on when Jesus was descending down the hillside upon the donkey. (laughs) They did not understand what Jesus was doing, that he was at work fulfilling prophecy at this time. And, And I think that that's important for us to note, because I think that we can oftentimes be like the disciples. And I'll explain, okay? We know that from the other gospel accounts that Jesus actually sent some of the disciples into the city of Jerusalem to retrieve the donkey that he would sit upon. Jesus told them to go into the city and that they would find the donkey and that they were to take it. And if anyone tried to stop them or ask them why they were taking it, they were to simply say, because the Lord has need of it and uh, just walk away with the person's donkey. Um, You know, the disciples had no idea what was going on. Jesus gave them just a little bit of information. Go do this. And if you get in trouble, just say this. You know, it's like, this is, this is not the donkey you're concerned about or whatever. You know, I don't know what it was, but it was just like, the Lord has need of it. Oh, okay. You know, take my donkey. I don't get it. We don't understand. Right. And, and as he asked them to do something that was a little weird, a bit odd, something that could possibly leave them uh, very uncomfortable and might feel like they're going to get in trouble. And while they didn't understand, Jesus was fully aware 
of what was going on. And he was working out all of the details to ensure that the Father's will was done. And it wasn't until later on that the disciples were able to look back and and see how the Lord was working. It wasn't until later that they looked back and saw the Lord's hand through it all. That happens in life, doesn't it? How many times have you been in a situation where you really didn't understand what God was doing? Perhaps you even felt like God wasn't doing anything, that He wasn't even around, that perhaps God had even perhaps abandoned you, only to come to find out later on that He was actively involved in all of the finest of details, ensuring that everything came together according to the Father's will for your life. If you're in a situation today where you feel like you have no idea or no understanding of what God is doing in your life, I want to encourage you to take courage, to know that He is at work, and to trust that He is taking care of the details. We're like the disciples oftentimes. We really don't know what's going on in in the midst of it all. And it isn't until we're able to look back where we say, man, God, you're so good. You did this and this and this. I didn't understand what you were doing in that, during that time and that season, and I was frustrated, and now I look back and I am just praise you how good you were and how you used that season and that time. We may not see how all of it is working together, but I trust that one day we'll be able to look back and see without a doubt the hand of the Lord at work. Verse 17 It says, therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. We'll stop right there. The multitudes, they were all going out to see Jesus. Despite all of the attempts of the Pharisees to trap Jesus in his words or to get him to stumble, they could, not get, uh, they could not touch him. They could not keep the people from going out to see Jesus. The Pharisees were losing control over the people. They were all going out to see Jesus. And the Pharisees, they were losing their power, their influence over the people, and it caused them to start to turn upon each other. They start looking at each other. Hey, look, all these things that we're doing, nothing's working. They're still going out to see Jesus. And they're going to start to uh, develop plans. And we're going to see the fruition of those plans later this week on Friday. We'll talk about that a little bit. But we'll get back to this uh, situation here. Um, We're told the people went out to see Jesus, to meet him because of what they had heard about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus was the good friend of Jesus, the brother of Mary and Martha. If you were with us last week, we looked at their their account um, in Luke chapter 10 at the very end there. Uh, On one very sad day, he died, uh, but the Lord was able to raise Lazarus back to life. And news of this miracle spread quickly. Everyone wanted to come and uh, see this miracle worker for themselves, the one who can raise people from the dead. As I was considering these verses, You know, I thought about the people's motive for wanting to go and and meet with Jesus. They wanted to meet Jesus because of the signs and the wonders that he did. And and I think it begs the question, you know, why do we come to meet with the Lord, right? Why do you come? Why have you come here today? Why do you gather here regularly on Sunday mornings? You know, what motivates you to come and, and meet with the Lord? And I think the answer to that question can be very revealing of where you're at with the Lord today. Are you, are you coming? You know, maybe you're like them. You're like, I want to see something cool. I want to see a miracle. I want to see something happen. Okay? Are you coming because it's just something that you do? It's part of your routine. It's like, you know, that's what we do. We go to church. You know, are you coming because of perhaps social benefits? Because you like hanging out with your friends? Or are you coming to, to simply meet with the Lord? To worship Him? to learn from him, to submit yourself to him. These people, they came to meet with Jesus because they heard about a miraculous sign that he performed. They wanted to see more. My question for us this morning is why have we come? What is our motivation to meet with the Lord? Verse 20 says, Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. 
Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. We'll pause right here. These Greeks, they came to worship, so we must believe that they are God-fearing Gentiles. Okay, when we talk about a Gentile, we're just basically anybody who's not Jewish. Okay, a, Jew, a Gentile is a non-Jew. And so these were uh, Greeks. They went to Philip. They expressed their desire to see Jesus. And I think that it is interesting just to note a, a fun little fact here that at Jesus' birth, there were Gentiles that came from the east to see the king who was born. And here before his death, we see a group of Gentiles that have come from the west to come see the Lord. And in that picture of just this idea of the work of the cross, the work of what Jesus came to do was not just for the Jews, but for the people from the east and from the west, from people for the entire world. But I, what I really want to point out here, though, is that these Greeks, they came with a desire to see Jesus. And I asked the same, similar type of question. Do we do the same? Do we desire to see Jesus? You know, we often sing songs about wanting to see Jesus, but do we really mean it? Do we have a heart that longs to see the Lord? You know, these Gentiles from Greece, they did. And, and so they went to Philip to see if they could come see the Lord and, and spend time with him. Philip went to Andrew. Together, Philip and Andrew went to the Lord to inquire whether they'd be able to meet with the Lord. Let's read verse 23 through 26 and see how Jesus responds to these guys. In verse 23, it says, But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. and He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. Where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. In response to Philip and Andrew, the Lord answered, talking about how it was his time to be glorified. And here marks the beginning of our second major section of our text, a place where Jesus presents himself as the sacrifice destined to die. Instead of directly answering Philip and Andrew regarding the Greeks' request to see him, Jesus instead speaks of his death. And in doing so, he indirectly answers Philip and Andrew. Jesus speaks of death, and he does so by first using the image of a seed to illustrate the need for death to bring forth great fruit. You know, a seed, if left alone, it will not do anything. Okay, You could take a seed, leave it on a table, come back the next day or the next week or the next month, Okay, and the seed will not have changed. It'll just be a, a, a seed. Okay? However, if you take that seed and you bury it in the plant, you give it some water, uh, or you bury it uh, in dirt, plant it in dirt, you water it, you come back maybe a few weeks later, you'll begin to see the beginning of a plant that will one day bring forth fruit. Jesus used this imagery to show the need for his death and how his death would bring forth abundant life. Jesus then turns his attention to answering the question that was brought by Philip and Andrew. Jesus speaks about the need of dying to self. You see, the person who loves their life will lose it, but he who hates his life or denies himself, dies to self, will keep it for eternal life. And then Jesus caps off his response with the understanding that those who serve the Lord will be those that follow the Lord and will be where the Lord is. So if you want to see the Lord and be where he is, Jesus is basically saying... And we need to die to ourselves. We need to follow him and serve him, and then we will be able to see him. Jesus said elsewhere in the Gospel of Mark, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The response Philip and Andrew were to share with those Greeks who wanted to see the Lord was simple. If you want to see him, then deny yourself, take up your cross, Follow him and serve him. Then you will see the Lord. It is then that you will come close to the Lord and experience him and enjoy the sweet fellowship of the Lord and be with him. Of course, I believe this applies to us as well. If we want to see the Lord, I believe the Lord would reply in the same manner. You want to see me? Deny yourself. Follow after me. Serve me. Then you'll see me. Then you'll be in the place where he is and you will enjoy being in the presence of the Lord and being able to see him for yourself. Verse 27, it says, Now my soul is troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? 
but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus was distressed. He was disturbed, okay, troubled in his mind. Why? Because he knew what lied ahead of him in this week to come. He knew the pain and the suffering that lied ahead for him. He knew the great sorrow and that he would feel as the wrath of God would be poured out upon him. It is my opinion, I I cannot prove this, but it is my opinion, I do not believe that it was the slaps to the face that he would receive, nor the cracks of the whip upon his back that would cause him this uneasiness. I do not think Jesus feared these things. Moreover, I believe that it was the fact that he would be forsaken by the Father. The fact that the Father would churn his face from the Son and pour out his wrath upon him. That was what I believe caused Jesus this troubled mind. But just as he would do later on in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus continued to deny himself and he continued forward to the cross and the wrath of God upon that donkey, knowing exactly where he was going as he entered into that city. His one desire was the glory of God. No matter what it would cost, no matter the pain, the sorrow, the great difficulty, Jesus was determined to glorify not himself, but the Father. And I think what a glorious example for Jesus to leave for us, that no matter what the Lord has us go through, no matter how difficult, no matter how painful, we could stick to the goal of glorifying the Father. Are we willing to make such a commitment? Are we willing to say, whatever you see fit, Lord, whatever you have for me, whatever you would have me to go through, no matter what, I am going to glorify your name. It reminds me of the life of Job, if you're familiar with his account. No matter what came his way, he was determined to continue to honor the Lord. When all was stripped from him, okay, he lost his children, his you know, possessions, his house, everything just stripped away from him. Instead of cursing the Lord or turning from the Lord or giving up, he simply declared, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. May we be ones that follow in the example of Jesus and that of Job, no matter what comes, that we will glorify the Lord. Verse 30 says, Then Jesus answered and said, This voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. The people answered him, We've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? You guys, this is a turning point for the people. Jesus said, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I imagine in my mind's eye that at this word, the enthusiastic multitude would have erupted in shouts of joy. Okay, this is what they wanted. This is what they were looking for. To them, they were still thinking secularly instead of spiritually. The ruler of the world to them, that's Caesar. The Roman Empire was ruling the world as they knew it. They felt the weight of the oppression of the Roman Empire. When Jesus said that it was time for judgment of the world and time for the ruler of this world to be cast out, they no doubt thought Jesus was speaking about Caesar and the Roman Empire. But again, they misunderstood Jesus. Jesus was not speaking about the Roman Empire or Caesar. He was speaking of the enemy of our souls, the devil himself. Jesus was was about to go to the cross He was going to die upon that cross, but that would not be the end of the story for he would rise three days later, defeating death, sin, and the grave and ultimately delivering a fatal blow to the devil. You see, up until the cross, you guys, the devil tried to do what he could to keep Jesus from going to the cross. He offered him the world, okay? The kingdoms of this world and all of their glory without the cross back in Matthew chapter four. 
You guys realize that during the 40 days in the wilderness, okay, the devil came to him, tempted him. He offered him everything. You can have it all. You don't have to go to the cross even. What was the implication? Jesus knew what light ahead of him. He knew what the plan was. And the devil said, you can have it all. You don't have to go through that. Just bow down and worship me. When Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he delivered a fatal blow to the devil and his hopes of retaining the rights to this world. The devil knows that he is defeated. He knows that there will be no victory for him, but he still roams about seeking out whom he can take with him in a losing cause. And so Jesus was speaking about spiritual matters here, about overthrowing the stronghold of sin upon the world. When Jesus continued and he said, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. At this word, you guys, the exuberant crowd would have started to simmer down a bit. They knew exactly what Jesus meant when he said, if I am lifted up from the earth. They knew that phrase was used of crucifixion, of being lifted up upon a cross. Wait a second, okay? That's not what Zechariah described. That's not what we want. That's not what we had hoped for. That's not the plan, okay? You hear hear this in their reply. They said, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Look at their response, you guys. Okay, the Son of Man, that's a, a messianic title. Okay? The Messiah is going to establish an eternal kingdom. How is it that you're saying he's going to be lifted up to be crucified? Who are you talking about? Okay? We're not on the same page here. And the wheels are beginning to churn in their head. This isn't the guy that we thought he was. This guy hasn't come to save us. He hasn't come to free us from the Romans and to establish a kingdom of peace and and prosperity. We've been wronged. You know, some people wonder how it is that the multitudes on Sunday could be singing Jesus' praise and shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, save now, save now, right? But in just a few days' time, they cry out to Pilate, Away with him! Crucify him! We have no king but Caesar. And some people think, how can that happen? How can you uh, on this day say this and then just a few days later say that? This is how. They made their shouts of praise and adoration while operating under improper assumptions. They assumed Jesus was going to set up an earthly kingdom then and there. And that is why they praised him. That is why they wanted him to be their king. They thought they were going to get what they wanted. They thought making him king and identifying him as Messiah meant peace and prosperity and freedom from the Romans. And when they started to realize that wasn't the case, they turned on him. And this is the beginning of that turning point. When Jesus declared that he was going to the cross, the people began to realize he's not going to provide us what we want. And so they said, away with him. We don't want anything to do with that guy. You know, I fear that we can be just like this crowd of people sometimes. Sometimes we come to the Lord with our own preconceived ideas and notions. And we know just what we need, right? I mean, who knows better than us what we need? (laughs) We know exactly what we want Jesus to do for us. And we come to him and we offer him our worship and we raise our voices to him and we lift our hands to him. But what happens when things don't work out the way we intended them to? What happens when God doesn't answer our prayer in the way and the manner that which we felt was best? Life doesn't always work out the way that we hoped and the way that we thought it should. What happens when we get passed over and life doesn't seem to go our way? What happens when, you know, the doctor calls us into his office to share the bad news? What happens when, you know, we don't get accepted into that school or into that program that we wanted to, or we don't get the orders that we wanted to, you know, and we thought that this is the plan, what happens when our you know, dream relationship starts to turn into a nightmare? Do we act like these in the crowd? Do we begin to think to ourselves, well, maybe you're not who I thought you were. If you're not going to work things out the way I see fit, maybe I shouldn't be worshiping you. Maybe I, maybe I should turn to someone else or to something else that will give me what I want when I want it. 
You know, we may not say, away with Jesus, crucify him. Hey, but how many of us are guilty of withdrawing from the Lord when things don't work out just as we had hoped? And we kind of feel like, man, I'm just, you know, distance ourselves. We allow distance to get in between us and the Lord when things aren't working out. How many of us have, have kind of gotten to the point where we say, fine, Lord, you know, if you're not going to do what I think's best, and I'm not going to worship you like I once did. You know, I'm not going to make you a priority if you're not going to come through for me. <laughs> you won't be seeing me on Sunday mornings anytime. You could forget that devotion time and prayer time. I'm upset with you. We don't verbally say, you know, away with him. But I, I think sometimes in our actions, we can we think that he's dropped the ball, that he hasn't come through for us, and so we turn our back towards him. We don't spend time with him. We don't engage with him or commune with him, all because we misunderstand who God is and what he's doing in our hearts and in our lives. Listen, you guys need to understand that God is not some genie in the bottle that, that serves us. He is the Lord of lords and He is the King of kings. He is the Lord and Savior of our lives. His job is not to make our lives easy and pain-free. His work is that of molding and shaping us into the image of Jesus Christ. And you guys, I, I need to be honest with you, sometimes that means heartache. And sometimes that means disappointment. And sometimes that means things aren't going to work out the way we thought would be best. And we must trust the master potter as He molds and shapes our lives. We must trust in the work that He's doing, that it is what is best for us, despite what we may think. The crowd here wasn't willing to trust the Lord. They wanted Jesus to serve them, to serve their desires, and for that, they'd end up rejecting their Messiah. Verse 35 Then Jesus said to them, A little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. This marks the beginning of the third section of our text this morning where Jesus presents himself as the light. Jesus told the people that the light would be with them only a little while longer, signifying the fact that he was going to be departing. And he exhorted them to believe in the light while the light was still with them. Jesus told them they only had a limited amount of time. The choice to believe would not be available to them forever. They would need to choose to believe before it was too late. Listen, we must respond to the gospel when the opportunity comes our way. We are not guaranteed tomorrow. We don't know how much more time we have. We don't know when the last time will be to respond to the gospel. Make sure that you take advantage of the opportunity to trust in the Lord and to believe upon Him now while you still have the chance. Verse 37, it says, But although He had done so many things before them, they did not believe in Him, that the, world, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Do you guys see the progression here in their belief as it's stated? In verse 37, though they saw many signs and wonders, they would not believe. Okay? You know, many people convince themselves, you know, if God would just do a miracle and prove himself to me, then I would believe him. That's a lie. That is not true. Miracles do not produce faith. Romans chapter 10 verse 17 tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It's hearing the word of God that produces faith. Faith doesn't come through miracles. Okay? It comes through simple hearing of the Word of God. As we hear the Word of God, it comes alive and it works in and through us and allows faith to come from us. These people, they saw the signs, but they did not believe. They would not believe. Then the same group of people are written of in verse 39 as those that could not believe. 
Just as Jesus previously spoke of, they had a time to believe, they had their opportunities, but they chose not to believe. The more signs they saw, the harder their hearts became. Then all of a sudden there came a time when God finally said, okay, okay, in my paraphrase, if that's the way you want it, then fine, you can have it that way. You see, God will not force himself upon anyone. He gives us our opportunities to believe, opportunities to trust in him, to surrender to him. But if we keep on rejecting him, there may come a time when like Pharaoh, God will say, fine, have it your way. He will solidify that hardened heart. Because I look out, I do see some newer faces and even some of the older faces. You guys come in here regularly on Sundays, okay? And I want to believe and hope that each and every one of you are saved, okay? And that you have responded to the gospel message. But if you're here this morning and you have not yet responded to the gospel message, I would implore you to do so today. You do not know how much longer you have. You do not know when the next time you will have to respond to this gospel message. Do not allow your heart to become hardened to the point where God finally says, okay, fine, if that's what you want. I've given you plenty of opportunities to respond. You don't want to respond, fine. And that Holy Spirit just stops reaching out to you and stops speaking to you. Don't let another opportunity to come to him be lost. Come to him while you still have the opportunity to do so. Verse 42, it says, Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. You see, there were some who did believe in what Jesus was saying. Some of the rulers came, the high-ranking officials, but they would not confess him with their mouths out of fear of man. They feared man more than they feared the Lord. They loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. They cared more about what others would think of them than what God thought of them. And how many of us are guilty of the same? We don't confess our belief in the Lord out of fear of what others may say or think. We know, what will the guys at the shop say? Or what will the guys in the squadron think if I tell them I'm a believer? You know, what will others in the community think if I tell them I believe in the Lord and I want to honor him in the way that I live my life, the choices that I make? You know, what will the rest of my family think? What will my friends think? And some people will miss out on heaven because they're too afraid of what others may say, think, or do. And it's a shame. And it's very short-sighted. When you're spending all of eternity separated from God, I'm sure you won't be thinking about what others may say or think or do. You will be regretting the choices that you made and the opportunities you squandered by not responding to the gospel. Don't let the fear of man keep you from fully surrendering to him and following him and living for him. Verse 44, we'll finish off the chapter down to verse 50. It says, Then Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. I've come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in that last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command what I should say, what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. The words that we just read are the final public teachings of Jesus recorded for us in John's gospel. The rest of John's gospel, it focuses upon Jesus' final interactions with his disciples and the details of the crucifixion and resurrection. This is the last time that he would address the masses, the people. And we sense in John's writing a choice. The word believe is written four times in this section, and the word judge is also written four times. Jesus' final emphasis to the masses in John's gospel was upon the choice to believe or not to believe, to be judged or not to be judged. Jesus, as he entered the city upon that donkey, that fateful day, he did not come to judge. He came to save. He came to offer the opportunity to believe upon him and to avoid the future judgment. Jesus declared, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Earlier in John's gospel, John wrote in John 3.16, you guys know John 3.16, but verse 17 is very important as well. 
Verse 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Verse 17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The declaration of this message is what you will be held accountable to. The words Jesus spoke, the gospel he shared will stand against you on the day of judgment should you choose to not believe. It won't be Jesus there. It'll be the gospel presented. You had opportunity to respond to this gospel and you did not. And for that, this is what you're going to be judged by. You'll have no excuse for yourself. The words of God will stand in opposition of any such claim of ignorance or misunderstanding. Jesus has made it very clear. As the light of the world, he has shown the way. It is our responsibility to respond to the light that has been given to us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your son, Jesus Christ. I thank you that you sent him, that he willingly came down that Palm Sunday, triumphantly entering into the city of Jerusalem, knowing the victory that awaited us, Lord. Yes, his victory over sin and death, but at great cost, at great loss, and yet yet he continued to pursue forth, continued to follow through, denying himself, glorifying you. And Lord, we thank you for that. And Lord, I do pray. Lord, if there, if there is anybody here that is yet to respond to the work of Jesus Christ upon the cross of Calvary, to respond to the gospel message, that today would be the day that they do so that they would not forsake this opportunity to get right with you. And Lord, that you would stir in their hearts a desire to know you, to see you, to place their faith in you. Lord, we, we thank you for the promise of your word that tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Your word has gone forth. And Lord, if there are any that are just in need of declaration of faith, I want to give them that opportunity here this morning. Lord, if there's anybody here, I want to ask that you'd boldly just raise your hand right now that I might pray for you and, and pray with you. Lord, is there anybody here? As we're all just praying, Lord, that needs to get right right now, I want to ask, give that opportunity. Amen. Amen. Lord, I do thank you for your son. I thank you for the work of the cross. And Lord, I pray that we, as we learned in our portion of scripture today, Lord, how the disciples really didn't get it. They didn't understand what was going on. Lord, we could be like that sometimes. We don't understand what you're doing. And Lord, I pray that you'd give us faith to believe despite our circumstances, despite what we go through, that our goal would be like your goal. We want to glorify you no matter what. And so give us the strength to do so. Not in our own energy, in our own efforts, but Lord, by your spirit that dwells within us. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for his work in us. And I pray that you would continue to mold and shape us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ, that we might bring honor and glory to you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.